cancel your lunch plans. <laughs> In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. The police, who investigate, the cr investigate crime, and the district attorneys, who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. <laughs> who doesn't know what that is? Just raise your hand if you don't know what that's from. That's, that's exactly what I thought. Law and Order, right? A formulaic show, but a fun show. A good show. A show with a, a tad bit of mystery in it, right? And in the show, we, we have crimes and investigators who investigate those crimes, which all kind of climaxes in the show to a, a courtroom scenario. And in the, the courtroom, right, that courtroom drama, which is invigorating, this probably shows it to it better, but we all know law and order. But that courtroom drama where there's a case and there are multiple narratives about that case. That there are, there's evidence and arguments and counter-arguments. And there's witnesses and then thrown shade at witnesses. And at the end of a court trial, the question is, what does the evidence show? And maybe more importantly, who presents the more convincing argument, the more convincing narrative. And this morning, our text gives us a case, a healer. And then there are accusations and arguments and counter-arguments. But in this case, like a skillful lawyer, Jesus is going to probe and prosecute these accusations made against him. And by the end, he leaves us with no wiggle room concerning who he is, his identity, and the nature of his power. And how we should respond. So, if you're here today, and you're undecided about who Jesus is, Jesus is going to tell you. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've been a Christian for decades. Jesus is going to remind you who he is, and what, by what power he works. The question is, at the end of Jesus' argument, which side do we find ourselves on? It's with this in mind that I invite you to open up Matthew, uh, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. It'll be displayed on the screens. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in the back on the bottom shelf connected to the sound booth. Um, please feel free to take one of those home with you. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, 32. This is the word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. 
but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Can we pray briefly? Holy Spirit. Enlighten our minds. Open our hearts. To your glorious work. That we might see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So here's the case. Here's the situation. It says in verse 22 that a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. A man who was totally cut off from the world, who was both blind and mute, totally shut out, unable incapable of reaching out to anyone lost and enslaved to this sickness. But not just the sickness. This blindness and muteness, this illness was not merely by natural causes, but was also supernatural. That he was both blind and mute and that his soul was oppressed by a demon, that he was enslaved to an oppressor under the tyranny of a wicked hand. But then Jesus shows up. This man is brought to Jesus, and Jesus opens his eyes and his mouth so that he spoke and he saw Though he could not see before, he sees the Son of God. And he could not speak, but now he can. That Jesus comes and he sets this man free. What an incredible act. Am I right? No doubt. An incredible act that the crowds pick up on. And surely we must pick up on it as well. For we, as well, who, before we knew Christ, were enslaved and blind and completely incapable of reaching out to God. But when Christ opened our eyes to the gospel, he saved us. And he saved us from the tyranny of sin. I just... In preparing for this, thought about the, the words of the incredible hymn that we get to sing so often. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is what Jesus does when he opens people's eyes and their minds and liberates them because of the gospel. This is what he's done to each and every one of us. It's incredible. It's astonishing. And in this situation, it's astonishing. Like, this guy who was blind and mute is now healed. And the crowds take notice. It says that all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? 
they weren't just like a little surprised. They weren't indifferent to what's happening. They were amazed. And so amazed at this situation, they asked this question, can this be the son of David? Now, this isn't an ordinary question like, hmm, I wonder. No, 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 no. It's a question with so much expectation. It's like, whoa, 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 could this really be? Could this really be him? It's like when I come home from work and I go to Gabby and I say, guess what's for dinner? And with a questioning, hopeful expectation, she responds, Chick-fil-A? <laughs> to which the answer is always, yes! <laughs> so for the crowds, this is kind of how they're reacting. Is this him? Could this be him? The son of David? The Messiah? The Christ? The one who would come to fulfill all of God's promises to his people? This miracle, it makes it so evident. It's so clear. But just as in any courtroom, there are alternative narratives. We read in verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees, they couldn't deny that a miracle happened. They saw, they witnessed with their own eyes, a power exercised and a demon exercised. <laughs> it was crystal clear. It was undeniable. But the Pharisees are not happy to agree with the crowds. They're so aggravated with Jesus that they're willing to accuse him of exercising the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of flies, in casting out this demon. They accused him of working for the enemy. So we have two competing narratives. Does the healing prove Jesus' identity as the son of David? Or is a pawn of Satan? I wonder if you've wrestled with similar questions in your own life about who Jesus is. Is Jesus he just some like crazy person or is he God? Was he just some historical figure who's just a, a good person? Or was he the Savior came to set people free. Or I wonder if in your life you've experienced some kind of trial and in a well-understood weakness of faith thought to yourself, has Jesus even really saved me from my sin? Or is he just playing with me? If that's you this morning, let Jesus offer his defense and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt he is who he says he is. Moving on to verses 25 and 26, Jesus begins his defense and he offers some compelling evidence. But Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? So he uses first the examples of earthly kingdoms, cities, houses. If they are divided against themselves, embattled within, with such harsh division, how could any kingdom survive for any amount of time? 
And the same thing with Satan's kingdom. If Jesus is working by the power of Satan and he's casting out Satan by Satan's power, is Satan stupid? It doesn't make any sense. It's just almost, and being that Lindsay's gone today, you'll have to deal with my football analogy. Uh, but it's it, like in a football game, you know, they're, they're uh, right there next to the end zone. <laughs> um, and the quarterback, right, it's the fourth down. And the quarterback, he goes and he throws the most glorious pass. And the wide receiver, he's there. He's ready to receive the ball. There's no one from the other team in sight. And just before the ball enters his grip, grip, his own tight end slams into him with malicious intent. What just happened? The team just played against itself. And now the ball has to turn over to the other team. This doesn't make any sense at all. There's no hope for victory in that scenario. Well, just the same in kingdoms divided against themselves and in Satan against Satan. The Pharisees' argument was illogical and foolish. It just didn't make any sense. And not only that, but the Pharisees also applied their logic in an inconsistent way. And Jesus goes on with another related piece of evidence. He says in the next verse, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? So the Pharisees themselves had disciples. They had their own pupils. And they were in the practice of casting out demons in their own work. So, if the Pharisees are accepting that their own students were casting out demons by the power of God, why would they then accuse Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan? See, the Pharisees were so full of malice and spite against Jesus that they could not accept this fact. They were blinded from seeing their own double standard. And rage characterized their accusation against Jesus. And you know, sin does that when it's unchecked. When it runs rampant, it blinds. It it keeps people from seeing itself. And being that much sin still lingers, even in the Christian life, we ought we ought to be on guard against it, that we also would not become blind to it. Fortunately, the Spirit does this, and I'm glad that it, on a weekly basis. We confess our sins corporately. It's about being on guard against sin and trusting the spirit of grace in our own lives. So the Pharisees have it bad. They've got it real bad. They've got this double standard. And the double standard is so bad that Jesus says, therefore they, your own pupils, will be your judges. Their own disciples will judge the Pharisees for hating Jesus so much that they attributed his power to Satan. The Pharisees' own will cast judgment against their teachers. That's how bad they're getting it right now. So Jesus has offered a defense. The logic of the Pharisees does not make any sense. 
their narrative is not based upon any of the actual facts of the case. Rather, Pharisees, in malice and spite, are just lobbing the most wicked accusations against Jesus. But now Jesus moves on to the offense. And he offers an argument. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The I here is emphatic. The I. Jesus referring to himself. And in fact, in other translations, the I comes before the Spirit of God. Which I think in some ways makes a little bit more sense just the way reading the sentence. But what that does is a, it gives a lot of force to what Jesus is saying. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, it leaves us no question about whose power Jesus exercises in casting out demons. It is by the Spirit of God that Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, was not active in His earthly ministry or solo, but His Spirit the third person of the Trinity, was operative in working through him. Having the fullness of the Spirit, he worked out, he worked miracles, and cast out demons by the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Not by the power of Satan, but the Spirit. This kind of miracle attests to this very fact. Who wages war against sin and Satan but God Almighty? Who does that? Certainly not Satan. God does. And all to what purpose as well? To establish the kingdom of God. Jesus says that this miracle is a sign that the kingdom has broken into this world. That the, the kingdom must be here because Jesus is doing the kinds of things that he's doing. That the kingdom of Satan is being overturned. It's being usurped. It's being overthrown. And that the kingdom of God is taking its place. to the very opposite of what the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing. That he had come to set up his kingdom. And I just can't help but think about some of those Old Testament promises. Like in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, that the seed of the woman would come to crush serpent's head. And indeed, in Jesus healing the demon-oppressed man is crushing the serpent's head. Amen? And is ushering in God's kingdom and is overthrowing the kingdom of Satan. Son of David, indeed, come to set the enslaved free. Come to establish God's kingdom on earth. goes on to illustrate this point, which I think really marvelously. He says, For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his goods. Isn't it clear at this point? Satan is the strong man and Jesus has bound him. Jesus is the one who has entered his house, has tied him up, and is stealing his goods, 
plundering what once belonged to him. The demon-oppressed man is one piece of this. And honestly, all other healings and uh, exorcisms that have come before this, that Jesus has entered into the strong man's house and is plundering his goods. Brothers and sisters, you know this. The reason you believe and belong to Jesus is because Christ has plundered you. That Christ has opened your eyes to the beautiful gospel and has has helped hold you captive from the wicked enemy into God's grace and God's kingdom. He has saved all of us from the tyranny of Satan. And honestly ties him up, slaps him around, and takes us with him. Isn't that incredible? Matthew Henry says that the design of Christ's gospel was to spoil the devil's house. To turn people from darkness to light. From sin to holiness. From this world to a better from the power of Satan unto God. Amen? Isn't this beautiful? What the gospel does? Friends, do not be mistaken. The miracles of Christ in setting the demon-oppressed man free was no work of the devil. Jesus makes his person and power clear. Jesus is a spirit-empowered Savior who overthrows Satan and ushers in God's kingdom. He's the spirit-empowered Savior who sets the captives free. He's the one who saved our own souls from the tyranny of Satan. Friends, Jesus is the spirit-empowered Savior. So clear. The work in and of itself is clear. But Jesus' argument is so clear. And so he moves on. Jesus has given his defense and his argument. And now he gives us a closing statement, which comes with a clear warning. First, he says, Whoever is not with me, against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is a a statement of absolutes. A statement that has no gray area. One that has no middle ground. The war that Christ is waging There is no neutral zone, no neutrality. Jesus is coming to the enemy. And if you are not for him, you are against him. We cannot be undecided about the person and power of Jesus. If he calls us to gather with him, to participate with him in the salvation of sinners. This is what Jesus came in the world to do. To save sinners. The Pharisees hated enough to accuse him of working for Satan. But the crowds who are hearing Jesus right now are yet undecided. Right? It was a a question, a hopeful question for them. But they were undecided. And Jesus says, beware. Either you are for me, or you are against me. And don't suppose neutrality. Because if you do not gather with me, you scatter. If you do not participate with me, saving of sinners, you 
undecided about Jesus? Because they've given, given abundant clarity. And he makes these statements that th- so that those who are undecided might decide. So if you're here today and you are undecided about Jesus, don't assume that you can be neutral. There is no neutrality. You are either for Jesus against him. You are either working with him to gather or you are working against him to gather. Jesus calls you to be on his side and there is no more, no, no other congruity with that than Jesus is. A wonderful king, a beautiful savior who comes to seek and to save the lost. No better side than Jesus no greater side than that. Now being that there are many here who have decided, who obey Jesus, who do gather with him, speak up. Don't become lax and evangelize. Speak to anybody who's willing to talk about Jesus. Let this be an encouragement to you that if Jesus is gathering and he's using you to gather, that he's working in you. That we have a kind of guarantee in evangelism because it's God working through us. Being that being decided to know and follow Jesus does give us some confidence. And it is what a lost world needs. Because being undecided leaves a person in a dangerous position. As we read next, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. A sin which has troubled many people. And maybe even provoked I grew up in the church. I didn't really come to Christ until my 20s, but I grew up in the church. And this sin, right, I knew about it, but it was quite mysterious. Like, ooh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like, what is that? So mysterious and so ill-explained it was growing up that there were quite a few times in my youth that I feared that I had committed it. And if in committing it, feared whether or not I could be forgiven. And I wonder if maybe some of you have a similar story where just the mention of this sin or the the thought of this sin or even the thought that a sin could be unforgivable has troubled your conscience to a great deal. issuing a warning, Jesus wants to secure a great deal of security for his people. So let's first talk about what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not. It's not simply unbelief. Or even a hardened unbelief. An aggravated one. Because then Who could be saved? If this is an unforgivable sin, then no one could be saved. And it's not sitting under duress or being in a complicated position 
where you sin as a result. Let's just look at the example of Peter, who was simply asked, Are you one of his disciples? And he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter did receive great mercy. And it's not backsliding, right? It's not confessing faith and then falling back into some old habitual sin. Jesus has recovered a many people from backsliding, from falling back into sin, praise God. Perhaps you are one of them. I know that I grew up in the church, and I was in much sin, but Jesus saved me. It's not backsliding. And it's not suicide. For whatever reason, this is a question that comes up often, and it's one that floats around in the internet and just in the common sphere of questions regarding your sin. There's no biblical evidence whatsoever that suicide is an unforgivable sin. And if anybody has ever told you that, and if you have a loved one who committed suicide, there is hope, much hope, because Christ merits his pardon has touched all sins. Amen? And it's not just some combination of words. Like if I stood up here and I said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's not that. I remember a couple, a few years ago, there was a documentary that was very much like Jesus was a myth and he wasn't real and Christianity is nonsense, whatever. And they had a promotional campaign in which it was this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit campaign where they had people record themselves and send in a, a video of them saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit as just an object act of rebellion because they wanted to be unforgivable. Like, it just didn't make any sense. It's not even that. Like, there's a special combination of words. Like, it's some kind of spell. And you know, it's not even just any kind of blasphemy. Any kind of sin. Paul, who said he was a blasphemer and an insolent opponent, who, who, who persecuted Christ's church, who sent a many a Christian to their death before he became the apostle, an apostle of the church, and whose, whose writings occupy most of the New Testament. the hands of Jesus, his Savior. So if you, in your conscience, have been troubled by any one of these, know that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not any one of these things. And let Jesus' warning both caution you and comfort you. Jesus' closing argument serves to both judge the Pharisees and warn the crowd. The crowds were undecided about who Jesus was, but they hoped. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were decided. Even though they witnessed a miracle, which was undeniably the work of the Spirit of God, they blasphemed by saying it was the Spirit of Satan, or the, or the power of Satan. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is at least that, it is a, an accusation. It is a, a claiming that the Spirit-empowered Christ is a Satan-empowered power. Sam Storms helpfully explains, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is willful, wide-eyed slandering of the work of the Spirit, attributing to the devil what was undeniably divine. But it's also more than that. There's the heart of the matter. The Pharisees, Jesus is saying really here, that the Pharisees are guilty of this sin. They not only just witnessed a miracle, but they were people well acquainted with the power of God. That the, the Pharisees were not unaware. They were very aware. Lick Duncan 
Reagan Duncan helpfully comments that the Pharisees were well aware because of the, their people's relationship with the Lord. It's the relationship we see in all of the Old Testament, well acquainted with the power of God. But they looked at the Spirit's work in Jesus and they slandered it willfully and in complete opposition, knowing exactly whose power he was working from. They spoke wicked things against the Spirit. They knew it was an act of God, but they hated it. But Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. So why not this one? Why not this one? Zacharias, your sinus, was helpful here. He comments that the one who hates God such, after seeing what is undeniably the Spirit's work, God punishes with perpetual blindness so that those who are guilty of it never repent and consequently obtain no pardon. Kind of an uncomfortable statement. Runs against many modern sensibilities about God. But our God does give people over to their own sins. And he expects of the blind that they walk really honestly in love of their own blindness. So, um, this is a sin of such an aggravated nature that it has immediate consequences and we see it coming. It is a sin that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And it precludes forgiveness because the person committing it, forgiveness is the last thing that they would want. It's the last thing that they would want. The heart of the unforgivable sin is willful, unrepentant hatred after receiving knowledge and experiencing the Spirit's work. And I think Calvin aptly says, we need not wonder. We need not wonder. If such a sacrilege, if for such a sacrilege, there is no hope for pardon. They must be desperate and turn the only medicine of salvation into a deadly venom. They must be desperate and turn the only medicine of salvation into a deadly venom. This is the condition of this sin. But there is hope. There is hope. Jesus makes this known for those who are yet undecided. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. What an incredible gospel promise. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. A God holy and righteous who deserves, who uh, owes nobody forgiveness. None of us forgiveness will forgive every sin and blasphemy. Every sin and blasphemy, which is a direct slap and punch and face. Uh, uh, in God's face, every sin and blasphemy. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, be aware, or rather beware. Being undecided leaves one in a dangerous position. Those who are undecided, who are not following Jesus, are in danger of their hearts, your heart being hardened so deeply that forgiveness and pardon become impossible because you've grown so angry at it. Please, rather take care and believe Jesus. He is the Spirit-empowered Savior who can save you from your sins. The Spirit-empowered Savior, if you go to Him in faith and repentance, faith and repentance to seeing Jesus 
I believe that you can save me and repent of sin, I leave all of that sin that I once so dearly clung to. I leave it. I turn my back on it. And I cling to you, Jesus, as my only Savior and my highest good. Turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. He will forgive you of your sin. Friends, Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. And this is good news. It's the gospel. The Son of God, perfect and without sin, bore sinners' sin on the cross and God's wrath against it. He did not deserve that death. We did. He died it so that we might live to God. That we might know and be included in the blessed communion of the Trinity. That we might know the eternal, infinite, incomprehensible love that the Father and the Son share in the unity of the Spirit for all eternity. That He might save us from our sin. If you believe and belong to Jesus and have come to know Him in faith and repentance, and you are fearful that you've committed this sin, I need to tell you right now that you have not. You have not. I need to remind you, friends, that you have is evidence enough that the Spirit of God dwells within you that you are very much concerned with the work that God has to do. You are very much more concerned with the Spirit's work in you. It's never a bad thing to know your sin and to do something about it. Never. But beware of this sin also. Not only does Jesus give this warning for those who are undecided, might decide, but he gives the warning for those who are decided. And if you're interested, the author to Hebrews also gives a very similar warning in Hebrews 6 to Christians because we still need to beware of this sin lest we act presumptuously in our slip of foot faith and we harden our hearts over years and years and years to God. Beware. Believe in Jesus. Believe in who he is and the power that he came to work through. And also, honestly, let that compel your evangelism. People need to hear about Jesus. Because those who haven't are in danger of their hearts being hardened. People need to hear about Jesus. And on the other hand, take care. Believe Jesus. Make your whole life about faith in Him and repentance towards sin. In your waking, in your sleeping, in your working, in your worshiping, in your fear, in your security. Believe Jesus all the days of your life. Believe Him for who He is and who He says He is. And let that encourage your discipleship of one another as well. I would hope that at the end of this you feel at least slightly equipped to help someone if they are fearful that they've committed something like this, to help them look to Jesus. But also, lest sin harden our hearts, be on guard with one another to challenge one another to point out lovingly and graciously our brother's sin that we might be renewed in our minds and in our hearts and live unto God there is no question Jesus presents the stronger argument 
he came into the world to, to seek and to save the lost, to overthrow the works of sin and Satan, to overthrow the enemy's kingdom. And he alone brings forgiveness to those who desire it, to those who know and trust him and his word. Friends, since Jesus is the spirit-empowered Savior, beware of thinking he is someone who is not, and take care to believe in who he is. Amen? Gracious Lord, as we come to you in Jesus' name, we know you and we trust you. God, enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might know you and trust you more, that we might obey you with all the days of our lives, and that when we do sin, we would be quick to repent and full of godly zeal. Oh, Lord, all of this for your eternal glory. And God, we do pray for those who do not know you. And Lord, we know that you desire the lost to be saved. And we ask by the work and power and might of your spirit that you would save unbelievers and believers. For you are God eternal, Lord Almighty, holy, true, righteous, just, and good. There is no higher good than knowing you. Convince our hearts and our minds of this truth and convince others as well. We pray and we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us?